So if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. going to be looking this morning at more detail at Psalm 1 as again we begin making our way through the first book of the Psalms. We will start by reading together Psalm 1 verse 1 down to verse 6. This is a psalm as well as Psalm 2 that does not have a title. There is not a specific author that is given to this uh, psalm, but it is traditionally the case that most all of the psalms that do not have an explicit author are those that were written by David. And in fact, you read in uh, the book of Acts when Psalm 2 is quoted, um, which uh, of course speaks of the Messiah, Peter explicitly calls it a psalm of David. So Psalm 1, though it has no specific author, very likely written by David. And we read, beginning in verse 1, the Holy Spirit saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, the man who fulfills this description in its fullest sense is the man Christ Jesus. He is the one who prospers in all that he does. He is the one who is like a tree, his leaf never withers. And if we eat of that tree, we will have life in his name. He is the type and pattern and model for us to follow him. He has given us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to conform us more into the image of Christ 
we desire as well to be like this blessed man. So Lord, I pray that as we meditate on your law, as we think over the truths of Psalm 1, that they would stir us up, that we would not be counted among the company of the ungodly and the wicked, but that we would be the righteous who, when the judgment comes, will be able to stand because you know our way, because you have paid for us. And so, Lord, speak to us this morning through your word. Help us to see the glory of your Son, Christ, and to follow him in all his ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, of course, we did an overview of the whole book of Psalms. And I sought to show you how the Psalms have been arranged with a prophetic intention. And that from the beginning to the end, the history of redemption centering on Christ is unfolded. And because of this, and as well because of things that the New Testament says about the Psalms, we are to understand that the Psalms are primarily about Christ. They were written by David and several other authors, but their primary focus was on the person of Christ. That is the basic approach and assumption that we are to have when reading the Psalms, and I would encourage you, again, if this sounds strange to you, or if you weren't here, you weren't able to listen to that message, to go back and to listen to it, to to understand what I'm talking about and the reasons for approaching the Psalms as if, as they truly are, they are about Christ. Now this morning, we're going to look in more detail at Psalm 1. This Psalm, as well as Psalm 2, serves as an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. The themes that are described here and in the second Psalm are themes that are developed throughout the rest of the book, the conflict between the righteous and the wicked, the centrality of the Torah of the Lord, or or what is translated as the law of the Lord, it's the word of God, the Messiah and his kingdom, the sovereignty of God and the judgment to come. When we come to Psalm 1, we are, of course, immediately introduced to the blessed man. And the question I want to raise as we begin this morning is, who is the blessed man? Is this just a general description of anyone who knows the Lord, or does it refer to something else or someone else? 
The particular Baptist Samuel Pierce said of this psalm, it describes the blessedness of the man, Christ Jesus. I think one of Luther's co-laborers in the ministry, Johannes Bugenhagen, answered the question well when he said, the blessed man who is here described is first Christ the Lord, who on account of us was made human, second any person who is in Christ. The psalm describes the ideal man, the perfect man, the righteous man. It describes the faithful king of a man who prospers in all his ways. And this is chiefly fulfilled in Christ and then secondarily in those who are united to Christ by faith. Now the psalm has a literary structure which consists of three Parts. There is a contrast between the blessed man and the wicked in verses 1 and 2. There is an illustration of this contrast in verses 3 and 4. And then we have a conclusion in verses 5 and 6. But as we work through the psalm, I want to divide it into two parts. And first, we're going to look at the description of the blessed man in verses 1 to 3. And then we will look at the end of the blessed man's enemies in verses 4 to 6. What is their outcome? So let's consider first how the psalm describes the blessed man in verses 1 to 3. And the first characteristic to note is that he is, of course, blessed. Sometimes this word is translated as happy. I think the, uh, the CSB, which has been very disappointing to me lately as it uh, translates the Psalms. I think it translates it as, as happy. But happy describes someone's own inward disposition. It's often an emotion that can come and go, but blessedness is a state. It can certainly include inward emotions of happiness, of contentment, of peace, and so on. But it is a much more broad and all-encompassing term. The blessed man has the favor of God resting upon him. He is a man who can be in the midst of conflict with wickedness and with evil men. And though his own soul may be afflicted with grief and with sorrow and even righteous anger, he remains in a state of blessedness because the Lord is on his side. But we find additionally that the blessed man being described here is described in negative terms. 
in terms of what he is not and in terms of what he does not do. He is neither a wicked man, nor a sinner, nor a scoffer. And he does not walk in their counsel, stand in their way, or sit in their seat. Now, there is, in this first verse, a progression here that goes from bad to worse. The psalm, in so few words, really summarizes the downward slope of sin and rebellion. It begins with a walk, a way of life, a formation of habits that are sinful. It progresses with a stand, and it ends with sitting a fixed, determined state. The blessed man does not even begin in this progression. He does not take the first step towards the downward spiral. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, which means that he does not even entertain the schemes that the wicked are drumming up. When he hears the words that they are speaking, when he hears the temptations they are offering to him for him to depart from the ways of God, they go in one ear and right out the next. You'll remember in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the people concluded that he is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And because of that, they wanted to make him king. But they wanted to do so by force. They would have stormed, in fact, the gates of Jerusalem with Jesus as their head had he let them. They would have drawn swords and murdered Roman soldiers in his name had he let them because they believed he was their king. They profess a faith in Jesus, but of course as the chapter and as the gospel continues, we find that the faith that they had in him was a false faith. It was rooted in false doctrine and ultimately in an unbelieving heart. John writes in chapter 6, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He leaves. The counsel of the wicked, those with a false faith, those who were simply enamored by the signs and the wonders that he was performing. Their counsel was to devise a plan to start a revolution and to take over. And they themselves would make Jesus king. But Jesus 
wanted no part of the flattery, you know? He hears, he's the prophet. He hears, he must be king. We must make him king. For any other man, that would be a great temptation. Yes, I will lead you to the promised land. He hears this counsel, these plans, this flattery, but he wants no part of it. And he needed none of it because he was born king and his own father would establish his throne. So what does he do? He withdraws completely. He didn't even consider their proposal. He is the blessed man whose walk does not take the first step in the counsels of the wicked. But the psalm goes on to say that the blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. This is a further progression into a path of sin. Once a man goes down a path of listening to wicked counsel, and then he begins to live his life in accordance with it, he reaches a point where he becomes even more resolved in his sin. He takes a stand for it. He wants to defend and justify his actions. Just by way of example, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, but this is a fitting example. Many parents do this when it comes to making bad parental decisions. All of the data, all of the biblical wisdom, even our own personal experiences scream at us about the ever-present danger and temptations of having the entire world at your fingertips through a smartphone. Everything tells us this is dangerous. It can lead you down a dark path if you are immature. And even if you are mature, the danger is there. Everything tells us this. And yet, parents, even Christian parents, conclude that it's a good idea to give their 10-year-old or their 11-year-old, or their 12-year-old, a phone to use whenever they like. They swear up and down that they'll monitor it closely as if they even have the ability to stop all of the spam messages and all of the things that come through the different apps. And then what happens? Inevitably, the child goes down a dark spiral into wickedness. And then the parents wonder, what happened? But the moment that this very decision is raised as one that likely contributed to the breakdown between the parent and the child, 
and one that probably needs to be corrected, rather than repenting of the parental negligence and making changes in the home, it is often the case that the parents dig their heels in even more. They take a stand. Instead of confessing the failure and course correcting, they establish themselves in the error and look for some other underlying reason that doesn't involve their own decisions. Of course, many other examples could be given to illustrate this kind of thing. Someone makes a foolish decision. It then leads into more foolish decisions and even sin. And then the foolishness turns into a habit. And then it's justified. It is a dangerous thing when one stands in sin. It is the inevitable result of listening to wicked, unbiblical, ungodly counsel. And as the psalm says, there is no blessedness in standing in this way. But of course the text doesn't end there. The progression continues in verse 1. The blessed man says does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This is the end point of living in sin. Once a person gets so acquainted with their sin and gets used to defending it and justifying it and giving all kinds of reasons why it, it isn't actually sin. It isn't actually foolish. And they get used to this defense. They eventually become mockers of all of those who do not revel in their same sin. We saw this in 2 Peter with regard to the false teachers. They were filled with greed and all manners of lust. And they justified themselves. They took a stand by twisted interpretations of Scripture. And once they had taken their stand and lived in it for enough time, they became mockers of any who believed that Jesus would come again and judge all sin and evil. This is the progression of going from bad to worse. You land in a final state of laughing at righteousness and holiness. And friends, the great, great danger of that is as you turn into a mocker, the Lord on high sits in the heavens and mocks you because your ways will come to nothing. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. But by way of contrast, this blessed man, again, he does not take the first step. 
Rather, he's characterized by something else. He's characterized by a love for the law of the Lord, or the Torah of the Lord, a word that describes the, all of God's instructions. It's the, the actual law of the Mosaic Covenant, and it's everything that came before the book of Genesis, everything that takes place in Exodus, and everything that follows. He's a lover of the word of God. It is his delight. And this is where I want you to start to recognize the fact that this blessed man is also a faithful king. Verses 1 to 3 allude to several passages throughout the Old Testament. But one of those is Deuteronomy 17, where we find in that chapter the laws regarding the king of Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, just like in Psalm 1, the king is given three prohibitions and one positive command. The three prohibitions are that he is not to acquire, one, many horses for himself, two, many wives for himself, and three, excessive silver and gold. And then he's given a positive command. That is for him to write a copy of the Torah for himself, approved by the priest, and he is to read in it all the days of his life. Likewise, in Psalm 1, there are three things the blessed man does not do. And one he does. He doesn't walk stand or sit with the wicked. And positively, he delights in the Torah of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. He reads in it all the days of his life. Furthermore, as I mentioned last week, Psalm 1 alludes to Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 where Joshua, as the new leader over the people of Israel, and who himself was a type of Christ who led the people into the promised land, he is commanded to not allow the book of the law to depart from his mouth. Rather, he, it says, you shall meditate on it day and night. And then, just as in Psalm 1, verse 3, the text says, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So this psalm is not just about anyone who is blessed. It is a description, most especially, of the blessed king, which of course makes perfect sense, since the psalm was likely written by David, who himself was a king, and who meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. But again, we see here in verse 3 that this blessed man represented most completely by the king of Israel is a man who delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. The word of God is his joy. It is not just a mere duty. It is not a list of do's and don'ts that he begrudgingly obeys. No, he delights in it. 
It is as sweet as a honeycomb to him. And in that delight, he never wants it to depart from his mind or his heart or his lips. That's what it means when it says that he meditates on it. Meditation is not where you just empty your mind of all thoughts and try to get present in the moment and close your eyes and get into some sort of trance where you're one with the earth and one with time. That is Eastern paganism. That is a false, unbiblical practice of meditation. Biblical meditation involves the mind. You don't shut off a part of you that God has made for your good. It involves the mind. It involves the heart, the affections, and it involves centrally the Word of God. In fact, the same word that is translated as meditate here is translated in Psalm 2, verse 1, as plot. The peoples who are plotting and scheming to rebel against the Lord and His Christ are thinking and devising plans. They're meditating on their rebellion. They're conversing about what they're going to do. They're speaking with one another about their rebellion. To meditate on the law, then, means that you are intentionally thinking through all that the law says. Its meaning, its applications, its wisdom, and doing so because you love it. As you think through it, you, you recognize, you understand this is the word of God. You are not listening to wicked counsel. You are listening to the counsel of the living God. But you love it. Friends, let me just ask you a question this morning. Do you love the word of God? Is it your delight? Or is it a mere duty? If it is duty, you will never be in it. It will sit idle, cover closed, and you will say, I need, I need to get in that. I need to get in that because I know that's the right thing to do, but you'll never do it. I'm reminded been reading through 2 Thessalonians of the day of the Lord that is coming. The day that will expose through a judgment those who belong to the Lord and those who do not. And those who belong to the Lord and who not, do not believe in all of the wicked delusions and false signs and wonders that come through the activity of Satan. Do you know what they're marked by? 
They love the truth. Love it. Love it. When you're away from it, is it a longing that you have? Or are you cold to it? Because the danger is if you're cold to it, it can be a sign of one of two things. Either you're dead and you don't know him and you have no spiritual appetite for the things of God or you have become so entangled in sin that it is keeping you from his word. Both of those require repentance. One, a repentance from sin that has kept you away from Christ altogether. You need to believe, confess your sins, and come to him for the first time. The other requires the same kind of repentance, only you're coming to the one whom you've known and have drifted away from. But repentance requires a, a change. And if you do not love the truth, friends, you need to confess that to the Lord, to repent, and to get yourself back into it and to meditate on it day and night. This is what the blessed man and the blessed king does. He gets the word of God down into the core of his being. He eats it. He chews on it like savory meat. When he hears some counsel, he evaluates it through the lens of the Torah, and therefore he rejects it when it is wicked counsel because it is not in accordance with the word of God. If it is not a word that accords with God's word, it is a bitter word, and the king spews it out. The blessed man fulfills the mandate that Adam failed to fulfill in the garden. Adam, of course, was given the word of God. He was told to obey it. But when the serpent came into the garden, deceived his wife, he listened to the wicked counsel. He rejected the word of God and so incurred judgment on himself. But unlike Adam, however, Christ, as the blessed king, fulfilled his word. As we read earlier, when he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Satan tempted him with food and with glory, but because the word of God was his greatest delight, because the word was his true food, and because his whole life was about doing the will of his father, he rejected the counsel of Satan and heeded the word of God. No doubt, Jesus himself would have had the very words of this psalm always on his mind, always on his heart, and always on his lips. We know very well that he had the whole word 
on his lips, and he fulfills them to their greatest degree. Now, additionally, when we come to verse 3, we have another description of the blessed man that alludes both to the ideas of kingship as well as to the imagery of the Garden of Eden. The blessed man, we're told, is likened. He, he, he's, he's compared to a tree planted by streams of water. Just as in Eden, God planted many trees, including the tree of life. And the garden had a river running through it, always watering those trees. And the man himself was placed there. the blessed In fact, it's interesting that the Targums, which were the Jewish Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament, right? So you have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, and then you have the Targums, which were the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew. The Targums specifically say in this verse that the blessed man is like a tree of life, a living tree. He brings forth fruit always at the proper time. He is always well watered by the word of God, and so his leaves never wither. He is like an evergreen, and all the trees around it are losing their leaves. Its leaves remain. And therefore, you can see something very different about this man. He stands out. He's noticeable. Everything he does, in fact, verse 3 says, succeeds. And so was it the case for Christ. Both his enemies and his followers perceived very clearly there was something different about him. He taught, but not with a, a usual authority. He taught differently from the scribes. He taught as one who had authority himself. He sought glory, but not the glory of men, but the glory of the Father. He fed thousands, but not simply as a miracle worker or for humanitarian aid. He did so as a fulfillment of the Word of God. He came to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father He did completely. He did not fail to accomplish any of His purposes. Even His death was appointed for Him, so that through it and His resurrection, His appointment to the throne would be established. And even now, as He reigns at the right hand of the Majesty on high, there is not a single thing that happens in heaven or on earth that happens apart from His sovereign will. He is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases and all that He pleases will prosper. And in His kindness, in His mercy, in His royal authority and from his royal throne, 
who bids sinners to come to him, to eat of the fruit of his tree. And if we do, if we come, if we eat, if we receive the fruit from the man who is the tree of life, the promise he gives is that we too will live forever. Now, the psalm, of course, contrasts the blessed man with the wicked throughout. And as we've just considered some of these descriptions of the blessed man, I want us to look lastly at the outcome of those who oppose him, the end of the blessed man's enemies. We can see beginning in verse 4 that the wicked are also described using an agricultural image, but they are not like a deeply rooted tree. They are not a picture of a flourishing garden or of anything that endures. They are temporary. The wicked do not last. They have only a short season and then they're no more. They ultimately prosper in nothing. Verse 4 describes the wicked like chaff that the wind drives away. They're the, the useless part of the wheat crop. They're like dust, right? You throw it up in the air, and as soon as that wind blows, it's gone. You can't find it anymore. It's disappeared, vanished. And this is an image of what will happen to the wicked. They believe that their plans will succeed. They believe they're in control. They believe and act like they're going to live forever, like they're never going to have to face any sort of judgment, that they'll never have to give an account. As an example of this, the, the wicked of Psalm 2 are rebellious nations and rulers plotting against the Lord and his messianic king. And yet all of their plotting is in vain because they cannot and will not conquer the king. Their positions as rulers will only last as long as the Lord sovereignly allows them to. But once he has accomplished his purposes with them, they will be brought to nothing. It's like what Jesus said to Pilate when he stood before him. You would have no authority over me except it be given to you from heaven. You think you're in control. You're a ruler. You have kingship. You have authority over men. But the wicked rule nothing apart from the sovereign hand of God. And their positions will not last. And therefore, all that the wicked ever works for, all of it will never endure. And they themselves will face the judgment of God, which is what verse 5 says explicitly. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They took their stand in sin, and they will fall in judgment. 
when that day comes, they will be tried. And whereas the innocent party could stand in confidence at his trial, the wicked will be brought low. The Lord has promised that a day of judgment is coming. You'll remember when the Apostle Paul was preaching to the men of Athens in Acts 17, verse 31, he said that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising Christ from the dead. Though it may appear to be the case, that sin and evil will go on forever since it has reigned on earth for so long, the promise and the warning of the Word of God is that all wickedness will in God's time come to a complete end. The way of the wicked will perish. And the only way to escape that judgment is to turn from wickedness now while there is time that remains. But when we say that, of course, we, we need to be very clear about what that means. That does not mean that what you need to do is to work on cleaning up your life before the Lord returns. Sin is not simply a matter of deeds that you do or don't do. It is, at root, a matter of the heart. It certainly includes deeds. Wicked deeds are wickedly sin. But it has an origin. It has a root that is within the heart. It is ingrained in the nature of man. It runs through your veins. It's in your blood. To escape the judgment to come and to be counted among the righteous, you need, I need, a righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that we can't produce. Because again, What's within us is corrupted by the first man, Adam. We need a gift. We need all of our sins to be acquitted. We are guilty before God. And no amount of good works from this point on can acquit you for the sins that you have committed and will commit still. Somehow you need your sins forgiven. Somehow you need God not to hold your very real sins against you while being just in doing so. He does not lay aside his just character, his holiness. You need the blessedness that David wrote about in Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the one 
his transgression, real transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Should you hear me very clearly? You cannot, you cannot stand before God as the blessed man of Psalm 1. That's not in you. That's not who you are by nature. How woefully short do you fall from the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night? Does that characterize your life? Is the whole Torah in your mind, in your heart, guiding every single step you take each day? Are you the man who prospers in all that you do? I think if you're honest, the answer, of course, is no. You and I are the transgressors the sinners. We need our sins covered and not counted against us. And the only way that that can happen is if we unite ourselves to that blessed man who is Christ, the King. Psalm chapter 2 verse 12 says that we must find our refuge in him. That's the exhortation to rebellious people. To no longer continue in that rebellion. To kiss the Son. To find refuge in Him. He must become our shelter. When the fiery winds of God's judgment begin blowing, and the coals begin raining down on earth, we need a rock to find refuge in so that those coals will not burn us. And it is Christ who is that rock. We find our refuge in Him so that the judgment does not harm us. The righteous are those who are righteous ultimately by virtue of their union with the blessed man. We begin with the blessed man as the king in Psalm 1. And as we'll see next week as we make our way through Psalm 2, we end with those who are blessed by finding refuge in him. So you must believe in him. You must trust in him. You must swear your allegiance to him. You must receive life from his fruit. A fruit that he freely gives and a fruit that is a gift of righteousness. We become righteous by faith in him. And it is only after we have united ourselves to him by faith that our lives 
can then be transformed and to look more and more like the blessed man of Psalm 1. We do not look at Psalm 1 first and foremost as the description of our own lives. We look at it first and foremost as the description of Christ himself. And then as we see Christ our King in it, and as we have been united to Christ by faith, we then seek to imitate the righteousness of the blessed man. The blessed man is the one who by his own righteousness will save us if we come to him. And then when we come to him, he will begin to transform us and make us more and more into his own image. Amen. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the King. We are grateful that Christ came into the world to fulfill all of the law and the prophets and the writings. That he came to be the righteousness that we could never achieve. And not only to do this for the fame of his own name, but to give to us who would believe in him the very gift of his righteousness that we might stand righteous before him. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that because of his work, we can stand before you and not fall in judgment. That even as John says in 1 John, we can have boldness when you come. Even as Paul says, when, when he comes at his appearing, we will love him and we will marvel at him. We will not shrink in fear because we have been clothed in his righteousness. And Lord, I pray that as we receive Christ, as we look to him, as our Savior and King, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next, and that we would take this very psalm as the model for which we are to orient our lives around and the kind of maturity and righteousness we are to grow up into. So, Lord, fix our eyes and our hearts upon Christ, and through this, cause us to walk in your ways, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.